Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the MA Mastermind Podcast, your go to source for the latest industry trends and strategies to help you level up your MA practice. Again, I am your host, Nick Olson, Managing Director of Cornerstone International Alliance. We are a consortium of 27 plus lower middle market MA firms who band together to help each other um, do great things in this MA space. Uh, we also bring on this podcast guests who are true masters of their craft, expertise in, in the MA industry. And today's uh, guest is definitely fits the bill there. Um, so I'd like to welcome our guest today. He's a he's a great guy. I got to know him over the last couple of years. Um, he comes from the other side of the negotiating table. So uh, you guys might have seen him in, in deals that you've done in the past. He is a director at Lead Capital Partners in Nashville. Um, he is on the board of directors at M&A Source. He received his master's degree in business administration from the University of Chicago. I'm seeing he's a former U.S. Navy intelligence officer. Um, please welcome my guest today, Lamar Stanley. Lamar, how you doing? Great. Thanks for having me, Nick. I uh, appreciate you joining, taking some time out and uh, talking about a really cool topic. Uh, what are some common deal killers that uh, that you're seeing, that we're seeing, and that are impacting how, uh, how the deals may not get done? Um, so I want to start out by saying, again, thank you for coming. Um, you uh, are with Lead Capital Partners based in Nashville, Tennessee. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about Lead Capital Partners and, and what your focus is and what kind of deals you're looking at right now? Yeah, uh, well, you covered me pretty well. I, I am, um, I'm not from Nashville, uh, where Lead Capital Partners is located. I'm actually originally from Mississippi, as you can probably hear. But um, about 10 years ago, like everybody else, I moved to Nashville and um, we, I joined LEAD though about two years ago. And what we focus on specifically are lower middle market healthcare opportunities. And, and we define healthcare pretty loosely. Um, everyone um, has things that they like more or less. And we certainly gear closer to the healthcare services side of healthcare. Um, but that said, I always tell people who are looking at healthcare related opportunities to take on for clients to, let us see it. Um, our investors, uh, you know, they like investing with us, one, because we're in the lower market, and two, we are targeting the resilience of the healthcare industry. So while we do prefer healthcare services related opportunities, anything touching healthcare might be a fit for us. So I always encourage people that if it's got any type of healthcare stink on it, uh, give me a call and we can we can talk it over. But um, on that note, too, I, I do like to point out another key differentiator or key element of our strategy is our long-term hold uh, focus. Uh, so we, our origin story is we were backed by five family offices that got us off the ground. And the intent is to buy things and then hold them, we say forever, but really what we're talking about is 10 plus year increments. And, and the, the logic is, is we're going to hold them as long as, you know, we are the right owner for the business and we want to hold winners as long as we can keep them that way. And so, um, in our mind, it doesn't make sense to sell great businesses. And that was frankly what frustrated me at my old firm is that, you know, we would have a great business and just because the firm, I mean, the fund lifespan expired at a certain point, we needed to exit and harvest those investments. And as someone who spends a lot of time trying to source great deals, it's just, you hate to see the great ones go. And so that's that's the benefit of Leeds model. And for the owners that we're working with, you know, we can look them in the eye and say, hey, look, we're probably going to be the last partner that you had. So um, 
that's a different message than folks who say, you know, we're going to, we're going to flip this thing in three to five years and hopefully make you a ton of money. Well, we're hoping to do that and not put you back on the dating scene, um, five years down the road. So enough about lead. Um, happy to be on here, Nick, uh, but appreciate you talking to me about this. Yeah. And, and it kind of, you know, go off what you just were were introducing about lead and, um, you guys are healthcare, like you said, um, what intrigued you about the healthcare industry that, that you guys are you know focused on that space? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, lead actually did not originate. The first deal that lead ever did actually was a pool lifeguard management uh, business. So not at all healthcare, or at least hopefully not healthcare. I, I guess you could spin it <laughs> that a lifeguard does administer healthcare at some point, but uh, hopefully not very often. No, uh, but like anything in Nashville, uh, we ultimately got pulled into the healthcare vortex. Um, and, and we really consider that a key benefit of where we are. Um, you know, you could argue that funds that are in San Francisco really have an edge as it relates to software and funds that are in Houston have an edge as it relates to energy. We feel the same way about Nashville and healthcare. Um, we go to school, we, um, I'm saying our kids go to school. We go play, participate with sports teams with kids around a lot of healthcare executives that can give us edges. And we're just buddies in social circles with a lot of people who can get us smarter on a lot of topics very quickly. So it's just a, it's an environment here that really is conducive to us having a higher understanding of some of these specific healthcare services markets. And even if I don't know someone in a industry that um, that we're looking at, I can get tight pretty quick, uh, just with a handful of phone calls, um, with folks that I could probably, you know, throw a stone at and hit somewhere in the, in the blocks around me right here where I'm sitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you've worked with a lot of our group too, and I've heard lots of great things about, you know, your, yourself and your firm and, you know, just your professionalism. And like you said, really great reputation on the, on the longer hold of the businesses. So. I think that definitely, like, I would agree, sets you guys apart and um, would definitely recommend working with, with you and, and your team. Really glad to hear that. Um, so one thing, um, when you're looking at investing in a company, um, is uh, the owner's continued participation in the growth, right? Can you explain what that means and why that's important with you, uh, why that's important to you and LEAD? Yeah, um, so getting back to our long-term hold strategy, um, if you sit down with me, Tate, Pryor, or Carl, any of my, my group here, um, you are going to hear the word alignment at some point uh, <laughs> within the first five minutes. And we think about alignment a lot uh, as it relates to both our investor base, to our partnership here, to working with partnerships with owners. Um, it, it is just critically important in our opinion for businesses to be successful. There has to be proper alignment. And so in that regard, we, we don't love the idea of just taking on a business and an owner, you know, tossing us the keys and walking out the door. Or if we, if, if there is going to be a scenario like that, where we're going to get involved, there's another layer of management who we can help kind of take the baton with and carry it forward mm-hmm. together. Um, we just feel like that's critically important at our end of the lower middle market. Um, you know, there's, there are plenty of public companies that you could lop off the C-suite from, and it would continue to march on without 
mm-hmm. even a stutter um, at the for the businesses that we're looking at and w- the way we define lower middle market is 1 million of EBITDA to 5 million of EBITDA is where that. we spend most of our time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in those businesses, culture matters and we have to have some uh, continuation of the old life, bringing it into the new lead life. And, mm-hmm. and people need to know, you know, who the critical players are, you know, where the bodies are buried in some cases, what, struggles we've had when we were trying to attack a new market. And, and, you know, we firmly believe that we're going to be standing on the shoulders of the forefathers of the business. And so we want to keep that corporate knowledge around. And so the best way to do that, obviously, is to get those members of the management team or the old ownership, keep them in the equity. And we want them to benefit alongside us as we continue to grow the business. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, the ownership group, the, the management team, I think is going to be one of your answers here, but for the for the advisors, M&A advisors listening to this episode, you know what are the, what are other criteria that you look you know you know from a high level of businesses that you guys want to target? Yeah, so the management team is a big part. Um, we we really like to see um, steady cash flow, and I realize we're not unique in that regard, but it's not just the number. Um, so many times we're looking at businesses, particularly around software serving healthcare or like RCM businesses or or things that are tend to be a little bit more technical they are might be transforming the business in the year prior to us getting a look at it and that turns us off a little bit um just because it, you know we like to see something that's been proven out so even if the cash flow stayed the same if they are if they've totally changed their model in the past year that makes things more difficult for us mm-hmm. um we also like to see, I mean, customer concentration is a big ticket item that we're going to look at very early in a process. We want to see that there's diversity in the customers, or if there's not, we want to hear that, frankly, the business is just as important to that customer as they are, you know, or vice versa. Um, so we, we, we look at that, we key in on that pretty quickly. And then, um, Obviously, every private equity firm, one of the most important things that we want to hear is, and, and I would also, I would tell this to a lot of M&A advisors, uh, this is a critical part of their job, is we want to hear the story of the business. So going back to the origin and, and tell us the tale of this business and include in that, the last chapter is, this is where the growth is. We, we you know, we can probably do our best to try and figure that out, and we're going to, but help us, you know, help us figure it out. And that benefits your client when we have been told a, a story on how this thing gets to the next level. And, and frankly, I mean, this kind of goes back to my earlier point about bringing along management. Nobody knows that better than the management team that's in the business. They know where growth opportunities exist and they also know where the false leads are that, you know, will take you down a, a dark path. Maybe they've already traveled. Yeah. And, and to add on to that, that kind of secondary, uh, to, that, to that point, you know, when you're projecting and you're looking at the po- growth potential of a, of a business, like how do you want it? How do you want that shown? You know, whether it's in the conversations in the sim or whatever, like what what, what makes it a, a real quote unquote projection as opposed to just a, kind of a pie in the sky? We think we're going to get here kind of thing. Right. <laughs> well, we do always expect to see the hockey stick, right? The projection that next year it's going to double. Yeah. Um, so we, we always take those with a grain of salt. Um, what what tends to be a little bit more helpful is if there's already a demonstrated 
bit of growth from whatever that new opportunity is. So let's say that you just entered into, um, you know, I'm in Nashville. Let's say a business has just broken into the Memphis market. Um, if you can show over the past two years that there were this much sales in Memphis and now this year there are this much sales and, and you could project that out, that we're going to continue to grow until the Memphis market looks like the existing Nashville market. That's pretty compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then similarly, if you can size whatever that market opportunity is. So let's say that you're bringing on a new product, not necessarily bringing in a new market. Mm-hmm. If you're bringing on a new product, how big is the market? for that product. And, you know, you could, you know, sometimes you don't know, I mean, nobody can predict the future. Right. And that's what we always laugh to when um, business projections have five years out. I don't feel like anybody can predict five years out, but you know, if you want to size a market for a product, maybe you look at a competitor and -hmm. say, this is how much they're selling. We feel like we could claw out 30% of their business, you know, whatever. There, There are ways to make a pretty compelling pitch and that's, what I'm talking about when I say, you know, we, we love to hear a story and, and explain to us why this is possible. So what is realistic? Two or three years down the road? Is that more realistic than five? Yeah, I think two or three is is great. Um, and then what I would also always suggest is we want to see at least as many years in the past as you provide us in the future. So if you're projecting out three years, then then we would assume that you're going to show us at least three years, maybe four in the past of financials. That's really good to know. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're kind of talking about the things, the positive you know, side of it. Um, we're here to talk about the deal killers, right? And right. so um, what are some things when you're going through the due diligence process, what are some things that you guys are looking to uncover? Um, like you said, you know, maybe the, the, you know, the, 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 the you know, all the stuff that could come, you know, up in, in due diligence that you, you want to get out, out in front of it early, I guess, would be probably one thing you want to look at. But what are some things you're looking to uncover? Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing I've, I've already mentioned a couple like the customer concentration bit. Yeah. Um, you know, if the, if the business is changing, that's a critically important deal uh, or issue. Um, you know, it, what we're trying to uncover is a difficult one to answer. It's kind of like the, uh, gosh, I can't believe I'm a liberal arts major and I'm about to utilize it. Uh, the Anna Karenina quote, it's all happy families are alike and unhappy families are different in their own way. So there's a lot of ways that a deal can get screwed up, I guess is the point. Yeah. Yeah. Not a very good analogy, I suppose, but, but you kind of get my point is that mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that you could uncover and it'd be hard to list them all, but that's yeah. it. Um, the one thing we do try and get to really quickly, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, is expectations. And um, what we want to know is, is this seller a real seller? And there are plenty of sellers, and I'm sure you can speak to this much better than I can. There are lots of sellers that think they're a seller, but their number is not reasonable. You know, mm-hmm. that, so yes, they're a seller at a certain number, but the truth is, is no one's going to come within 40% of that number. Um, that's not a seller. And so that's one of the first things we try and get at. Not that we need to hear what your valuation expectations are, Mm -hmm. but we want to talk to them and hear what their expectations are for the process. So if it's, Hey, I want to close this thing in three weeks, say, well, but I got bad news. You know, that's not going to work. That's not going to happen. You know, Mm -hmm. if somebody's telling us in December that they want to close by the end of the year, 
um, at the first meeting. So those types of things are critically important. Um, I also, um, you know, this is kind of less about what we're trying to uncover and more about what's just general deal killers. Mm-hmm. And this kind of goes with expectations loosely is uh, we just want to make sure that everybody's we, we're trying to manage trust, um, not only because we're going to be partnering typically. And so we need to keep the relationship great, but it's very difficult for us to move through a process and, by the way, spend the money on diligence all along the way if we don't feel like we're we're being negotiated with in good faith. Um mm-hmm. You know, if if we uncover things um, that are, I'll use the word problematic, you know, uh, then it, without them offering them up initially, that that jeopardizes the process, in our opinion, um, just because we want to know that all parties are kind of being forthcoming with with everything they're doing. And that works for us, too, by the way, uh, if we bump into an issue. We are pretty adamant about, and we feel like this is a lot attributable to, I mean, a lot of leads success is attributable to this is we try and get right out there with bad news. We want to come early and often with the bad news just because it letting it linger is not healthy. Um, you know, if we're, if we're not seeing cash flow where the seller says it was, we want to talk about it immediately. And the reason we want to is we don't want to, you know, be sitting on something that ultimately is a deal killer. Um, so, yeah, that's, um, I mean, and, and you kind of hit on this too, but you know, my next question is as M and a advisors, you know, what are, what are, maybe you give us an example or two that maybe you have a negative, you know, experience you had where you wish they would have brought some information out, you know, early. Cause I, like you said, the earlier, the better. I know uh, we both know Scott Bushke, our, our founder and, I always hear him say, go dirty early. Um, and, and, and so that's very true because you guys, yeah. from your perspective, you want to uncover all that early on. So not only can you, you know, obviously, un, you know, unveil that, but really talk through it. Maybe there's a resolution as to how you can you know, fix it or there could, you know, turn a maybe, maybe not a great component of the business into a positive where you guys can help, you know, maybe improve that if you are the successful buyer. Yeah. Uh, a good example of that. Um was a few years ago, or I guess two years ago, we were looking at a, a physician practice. They had three locations um, and they had actually opened a fourth and then closed it. And, um, and which is fine. It happens all the time. We look at a lot of physician practices that try new markets and ultimately either can't staff it or there's just not enough market demand in that location. So they shutter it. It's, it and depending on the physician practice, you can do it at a fairly reasonable cost, just kind of test markets, that type of thing. Well, th- these guys didn't uh, disclose it. They didn't talk about it. And oh, by the way, that that's fine, I guess. But it was also what made it a little bit of a frustration for us was they were also talking about kind of growth opportunities around opening practices other places. And so that feels like a relevant detail um, yeah, that they've yeah. actually tried to open in one geography and it didn't work. Now, this is a perfect example of kind of to your point about going ugly early or go dirty early is if they had led with that and said, hey, it didn't work for these three reasons. And oh, by the way, we learned these two things about, you know, de novo new locations uh, 
and we will be super successful in this location. And this is why we think so. Mm-hmm. You know, that that really is pretty compelling, uh, yeah. but it's not as compelling. And it also kind of fractures trust in some cases. If we find out later, say, wait, 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 we found in the data room that this what was this? And they said, oh, we tried to open this location. OK, well, yeah. let's talk about that. You know, what, what happened here? Uh, and so it just kind of then we then we start to rack our brains. Say, All right. Well, what else are we missing? And this kind of gets to another deal killer, too, that I was thinking about as you were talking earlier. The other one that you'll hear every M&A advisor say is time. Time is the number one deal killer. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are firm believers of that, too. <clears throat> Bringing those things up, that's just time, you know, yeah. and, and at some point deal fatigue sets in because we start looking at what we've learned just through the diligence process. And we say, what else are we going to find out? You know, these guys aren't being necessarily that forthcoming. This is this the best because we're a lean team. And so we can't work on deals that that aren't necessarily going to close. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that's the big concern for us when the timeline for a deal starts to really slide. What are some other things that you see that that I guess kind of compiles the the taking more time, you know, kind of the deal kill or time kills all the deals? What are other things that you see? advisors do or their clients do that kind of prolong the process? Yeah. So um, one is just preparation. Um, I'll, I'll quote an old gunny in the Navy, uh, the guy who stood over me for three months at OCS. Um, going fast, or I'm sorry, going slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Uh, that would be my recommendation to a lot of m advisors is don't necessarily rush to market. Mm-hmm. Go slow get the data room filled, prepare all the documents that you know people are going to ask for, mm-hmm. and then launch. Because if you launch and these things aren't ready, then we're going to be requesting documents that the owner can't yet provide. And oh, by the way, they're still trying to run their business. So they're mm-hmm. diverting attention from that. Yeah. It's better just to have everything prepared. And then that way we don't spend time during the deal process trying to come up and we're sitting and waiting and wondering if the owner has lost interest or what's happening on the other side of the curtain. Um, It's much better to have all that stuff set out. The the other piece is um, if, you know, our meter is running. And so, you know, you could argue that we'll spend the same amount if it takes 10 minutes or if it takes three months. So that's not necessarily the case. There are some things that cost more money if the the, the process continues to slide. So now, yes, you could make an argument at some point if we've spent enough money, we're pregnant. But I don't think there's any private equity fund that feels that way. You know, if yeah. they if if they sense that it's a bad deal and time is going to eventually take it down, then um you know, they'll, they'll walk away. Uh, mm-hmm. One other thing too, about the, the time is, you know, you're buying future cash flows and um, future cash flows assessed at this moment. If a deal process takes a year, I mean, I, I would be hard pressed to find any business that the picture of what projected cash flow looks like, it changes uh, yeah. if you take too long. And so, you know, if, if you get a deal done in two months, that's much better than, a year because some of the work that you let's say you started January 1st and didn't close until the end of the year. Well, some of the diligence that we did in February, probably I'm not going to say it needs to be redone, but there might've been things that change or, or perspectives that change in that period. So it's best to just 
get get things moving as quickly as possible. You know, I want to go back to your point about being prepared, like take the time, go slow, prepare. And I got to imagine if you if you get into a situation where they're not prepared and you're asking for documents and, you know, they're taking time to get it, you know, that's got to have that's got to add a bunch of frustration on both sides of it from your side, you know, from the even the business owners getting frustrated, obviously, you know, the advisors getting frustrated, like that just adds a whole nother dynamic to beyond just the longer it takes, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's actually an even better point. And I, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because I forgot to say that. We hate it as much as the advisor hates it because it makes us look like we're sharpshooting the owner. Mm. Uh, when we say, hey, look, can we get the financials from the year before COVID? Because there's so much noise in here. Mm-hmm. That's something that they probably should have anticipated. And then it makes us look like we're accusing the owner of not having his stuff together, you know, and then similarly, um, like customer concentration metrics, we start to look like the, the good idea fairies when we're saying, Hey, you know, can we get these broken out? And then they give us kind of a, a lackluster answer, be like, okay, but can we get the next 10? And, and then we start to sound like just the, the squeaky wheel that's bothering the owner. Whereas mm-hmm. if the M&A advisor said, Hey, look, they're definitely going to want to see, this. Yeah. Let's go ahead yeah. and get it done. Um, then the owner, and this goes back to the expectation management piece, the owner doesn't look at us like just a big, you know, nagging buyer. Um, now we look like yeah. the guys who are asking for exactly the things that the M&A advisor told them we would ask for. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's just a little bit different when you've spent time preparing. Also on that note too, uh, one plug, um, a big alleviator of all of this, of this issue is just a sell side QOV. Um, We are going to be, we're going to look a lot less. um, We're going to be much more inclined to accept data and numbers. If we know that a a sell side QOV has occurred and, uh, and, and also our, the guys who are going to be doing our QOV, the buy side QOV, they're going to be a little less likely to, to try and punch holes in something if uh, if they know that another CPA has, has dug through it. So that, yeah, that that's, tends, that's, no, granted, it costs money, but but a lot mm-hmm. of times, most times in my opinion, it pays for itself pretty quick. Are you seeing more sales uh, sell side QOVs nowadays or is that something that's that's shifting or would you, like, you still like to see more of that? Yeah, I mean, we still don't see them in all cases. Uh, most of our deals, frankly, don't have them. Um, so I can't say that we're seeing more, Yeah. but, but I'll, I'll just tell you, we are a professional buyer and seller of companies and we would not consider selling a company without executing a sell side QOV. So take, mm-hmm. take that for what right. it's worth. That's good advice. That's good <laughs> advice. That's good advice. Um, so, um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, you mentioned kind of, I'm not taking another step back. I just wanted to read it hit on this you mentioned covid financials pre-covid is like from your perspective is that still an important component you still want to see financials pre-covid or are we kind of beyond that or not quite yet yeah i mean it depends on the business right but we're probably real we're probably there for some businesses and not for some others um i you know it's kind of like (laughs) in my old firm i used to kick myself frequently i mean i I still did it um but we would ask about uh, as late as 2000 and 
15, we were at 16, we were asking, uh, actually, I guess later than that, honestly, but we were asking about how things went in the downturn, you know, 2009, <laughs> 2010. <laughs> so we had to stop ourselves at some point. We said, look, this yeah. is just a different era at this mm -hmm. point. Um, so that's no longer relevant or this business really didn't exist in its current form mm -hmm. back in that era. So we're probably getting close to that where you can see some pretty true numbers mm -hmm. um, coming out. But, you know, it never hurts, uh, especially if they're if it if it enhances the story that you're telling, Nick, you know, right. where right. It, yeah. you know, this is what happened during COVID. And now we're back to where we were in 2019. Mm -hmm. And you can see a 5 percent increase. Like that, in our opinion, helps you probably more than it helps us just because you can show with a dotted line kind of what it would have looked like had the world not gone off a cliff in March of 2020. Yeah. How is, you know, how is, um, how did COVID affect healthcare and how is, how is healthcare kind of rebounding from that, you know, based on the effect that it had? I mean, it's, it's a, you know, there are huge differences. Um, I mean, like if you ask a dentist's office where their revenue went to zero in April of 2020, they can show you kind of how it impacted. And there was just a backlog of clients and then they had to get all their patients back in the house. But there are some um, sectors that weren't impacted or were greatly enhanced, like urgent cares, for example. Like we're looking at a group of urgent cares right now mm -hmm. um, that... You know, the, the hard part when you're looking at urgent cares in the post-COVID era is you try and figure out what is COVID pop and what is actually sustainable mm -hmm. uh, revenue. Um, can't think of other examples, but it's a lot like the rest. I mean, like industrials markets that I used to work in is that it, it varies. I mean, there are some that benefited uh, quite a lot, and then there are some that, that really suffered during COVID, and it's just... It, 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 different strokes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just, uh, you know, I think just in general, people are getting more back to the, 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 I guess elective might not be the right term, but just the, right. you know, the maintenance, you know, the, the necessary stuff, you know, the physicals, yeah. the, you know, the teeth cleaning, all that sort of stuff. I think that's getting way more back to normal than what you really necessarily couldn't do during COVID. So I guess that's, a yeah. Good no, you're right. I mean, in that regard, we're seeing there are no real remnants of we are definitely in a post COVID era where, you know, the dental practices performance right now is about what you should expect. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, man, this is this has been amazing insight. So I appreciate that. I've, I've definitely learned some things here and hopefully our listeners have as well. Um, mm -hmm. Let's fast forward to 2024. What are you seeing? What are you projecting, you guys at Lead? What are you guys projecting for 2024 as far as just, you know, I guess first deal volume. Are you guys expecting to have a, a good amount of deal volume, you know, low? I guess, what are, you, what are, you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, we, we are expecting a lot of deal volume to come in the first quarter of 2024. Um, a pretty common refrain that we're hearing from M&A advisors is that, well, well, first, let me tell you what we've seen this year. Um, the first half of the year was really, really slow from a deal flow perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, it picked up after Labor Day-ish. Um, and so we've seen a, a big push of, of deal flow. Um, and then we are hearing from a lot of M&A advisors that business owners are, are looking to 
to do something in the first quarter of 2024. Now, what that's attributable to, again, it varies, but uh, our sense is, is there was just a lot of uncertainty. Business owners were working this year to get their businesses back to steady state post COVID era demonstrates. And then the biggest thing in the healthcare sector is they wanted to get a year under their belt demonstrating that, you know, things are back to normal. Um, and then you compound on that interest rates rising. A lot of M&A advisors were hesitant to bring deals to market if they felt financing markets were, weren't going to be able to, to be there for buyers like us. But I, I generally think now people are pretty comfortable about the availability of debt. Um, the world is not getting any more stable. <laughs> so uh, people are, are pretty anxious now to bring things out kind of early next year. Um, so my hope is that my phone rings off the hook in January. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe we'll uh, roll, scroll that cell phone across the room. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I also can be out that by saying like, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Because I remember saying stuff similar to this in February of 2020 about how busy we were going to be right. that spring and then the world ended. So, um, so I, I should, yeah. I got to stop making predictions. You know, you never know, right? Hey, yeah. predictions are, are fun to make sometimes. That's right. Um, what That's now right. I'm going to have you make another prediction. What about, what are you, what are you seeing or projecting on multiples for 20? Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, mechanically multiples should be going down, right? Just because debt's more expensive and, uh, and there's less availability of debt and, you know, there are fewer deals. Um, so that actually, I guess will bring multiples up, but our sense is, is that multiples are holding steady about mm -hmm. where they've been, um, over the past year. Uh, we were expecting maybe some discounts, but that just hasn't come to fruition. Our, our best explanation for that is there's just a lot of dry powder still out there. There are just fewer deals, the same number of firms out there. Um, if you look back at 2021 in particular, that was a record breaking um, fundraising year. Um, so all that dry powder is standing by and deal flow has been light. So folks need to get that that capital deployed. And for that reason, multiples have been holding steady in spite of increasing uh, interest rates. Um, if anything, maybe in certain sectors, multiples have gone up. So yeah, that's, that's, we expect more of that. I mean, there's just a huge backlog of dry powder that that's going to get deployed um, mm -hmm. in the next year or so. So we're trying to pick our spots <clears throat> and this goes back to our, you know, expectation that we do have edges in certain sectors where we feel like we understand or we can see the ball a little bit better than most just uh, due to our experience in healthcare markets as well as sitting in Nashville. So mm -hmm. we're hopeful that we're going to find two or three spots again next year where we can deploy some capital. Yeah, that's awesome. And hopefully with one of our, uh, with one of our CIA members. That's right. right. That's awesome. <laughs> or the right opportunity. Yeah. So Lamar, I appreciate your time today. Um, great insights. I always love hearing, you know, we're, we're, we're primarily sell side M&A advisory firms. Um, it's always great to hear, you know, uh, your perspective from the opposite side of the table. Um, I learned a lot. I, I'm sure our viewers learned a ton. Um, where can, uh, how can, how can our viewers get a hold of you? How can they reach out to you? Where can they find you? All that fun stuff. Yep. Uh, you can find us at leadcp.com, not lead, lead, L-E-A-D-C-P.com. Uh, we joke whenever, whenever we're having a bad day around here, we're 
led capital partners, but uh, <laughs> you can find us on our website, uh, leadcp.com. And you can find me. And, and like I said, we're a, we're a small team. Uh, we're all good at sweeping the floors or closing deals. So you can reach out to any one of us and we'll be, we'll be responsive. Um, happy to talk to anybody. And, and, you know, even if it's not a deal, if you just want to brainstorm about certain things, we love having those conversations. Um, frankly, we, we learn as much as we teach a lot of times in certain healthcare services sectors when folks are new to an industry. So we, we're, we're always happy to, to talk things over with folks and try and be helpful whenever we can. That sounds great. I mean, that just epitomizes what you guys are as a, as a firm, as people, I think um, that's shown, you know, full, you know, you know, shining that out as, as you guys are, are great people and great to work with. And I would echo that in, in the, in the, you know, in the um, interaction that you and I have had. So really appreciate you joining um, the m Mastermind podcast today, a true mastermind, if I can say so myself, you, not me. Um, and uh, I appreciate Sorry, everybody listening in, joining. Um, please like, share, and comment on this episode. You can find all of our episodes at cornerstoneia.com. Uh, Lamar, thank you again. And until next time, um, you know, hopefully we can get some more deals done. Great. Thanks a lot. Appreciate having me, Nick. Stopping out.